Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to episode 200 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to say thanks to our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Deborah Beretta, Nick Noetzal, Alex McHugh, Noel Villalobos, Mairead Kirby, Jared Martin, Chrissy Francis, Ellie Morris, Connie Martin, Megan Hall, Jesse, Terry Shannon, Jennifer Pugh, Laurie N, Michael Stacey, Eric. Victoria Back, Teeny J, Jan, Lauren Alum, and Ellen J. Brown. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Skinnamarink. Skinnamarink was released in 2023. It is 5 out of 10 on IMDb and 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. Two children wake up in the middle of the night to find their father is missing and all of the windows and doors in their home have vanished. I mean, I don't, I don't know how this, how this film review is going to go. But uh, before we start, before we get into it, just to say, so many people requested that I review this film. I was getting messages here, there and everywhere being like, you need to watch Skinnamarink and review it. And this film was all over TikTok. So from what I could gather, it was streamed on a like online film awards thing and due to some sort of glitch it ended up being downloadable so it like word about this film spread really quickly and it gained this sort of like underground cult status really quickly and lots of people were like this is the scariest movie I've ever seen so I I thought yeah let's watch it and I had geared myself up to hate it and while I didn't hate it I also sort of hated it so let's get into it my likes just to say massive props to the director for for making a movie that was such a risk because this is a risky film it is very sort of art house i mean it seems to be also very marmite like people either love it or hate it it's all shot on like old vhs style shots that are all frustratingly off center you see very little a lot of the time there is no narrative there are just fragments of sentences that you hear every so often that kind of encourage you, I suppose, to create a story as to what's happening. And I feel like this film is like the slowest of slow burn when it comes to film. Um, it is it, it does not move at any pace, let me tell you. It's like a snail's pace. But in saying that, I thought I was going to be really bored and for some bits I was, but for other bits... There were great jump scare moments and great tension building moments. And I did feel really freaked out while I was watching it. There were moments where you knew something was coming, but had no idea what that something was or what it was going to be or how it was going to be portrayed on screen. So there was a lot of anxiety and tension that built up. And and there was a couple of times where I had to stop watching it, where I had to pause and go, okay, I'm going to go in and empty my dishwasher now and try and calm down. So I can't say that I hated it because as a horror film, it did what it was meant to do. But I don't think that necessarily means that I liked it. Like maybe I'm just not built for art housey, clever movies. Maybe it's just not my style. But also maybe someone should have sat down the director and been like, babe, cut an hour and a half off this movie and we're good. Do you know what I mean? Take, take, take all of the extra shit that you've put in there get rid of it and as far as I know this full-length film was based on a short film that was based on this idea of childhood nightmares so the director I think had posted 
on different forums being like, tell me about your childhood nightmares. And this film is what was born out of that. And I'll give them, I'll, I'll give them props for that because it did feel like a fever dream. And ordinarily, I, um, I really dislike using the word self-indulgent to describe films because I sometimes feel when somebody describes a film as self-indulgent that they just didn't really like it but don't have a reason as to why they didn't like it or they don't can't really explain to you why it feels self-indulgent. But if ever a film felt self-indulgent, it, it was this one in that it was so out there that it almost... It almost felt to me like the watcher was expected to do all of this work to understand it. And if you don't understand it, well, obviously, you just don't get out there cinema. And maybe that's me just projecting the fact that I didn't feel like I was the target audience or I didn't feel like I understood really what this film was about. So maybe that's just me projecting. But it definitely felt like somebody being like, I'm going to make a film like this and it's going to be so out there and I understand my craft and it's not my problem if other people don't understand my craft. So I still can't decide whether I liked it or not and it's a very difficult film to describe or talk about or explain or dive into in depth because it is just so bizarre. But the interesting thing is this, I spent a really long time reading theories on Reddit as to what people thought the film was about which means that it must have engaged me in some way because I wanted to figure out what had happened or what, at a very basic level, the storyline was because there was no narrative in this film. And the other thing that was interesting was that yesterday I spoke to Dave Keane about it and I was saying, oh, I watched this film and it was really weird and you should watch it, but I don't know if it's a good film or not. And he made a very good point, which was A, you are still talking about this film and you're talking about this film to me and B, you're telling me to go and watch it. So whether you liked it or not is kind of irrelevant because it's sort of done its job. So somehow in this film, I was simultaneously bored, confused, terrified, anxious, confused again, probably angry at some points. I I don't know. I just don't know. I I don't know how I feel about it. I think I need to give this film like two and a half stars, maybe. Because that's right in the middle. Because I just can't... I just don't know whether I liked it or not. I don't know whether I thought it was good or not. Which may be the most non-committal film review that I've ever done. But there we are. That's what happens when you watch a film that is so truly out there that you, you can't even figure out whether you liked it or not. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And our story this week, our story this week is all about the Humpty Doo poltergeist case. And yes, that is a real place. The information in today's story came from the book Australian Poltergeist, The Stone-Throwing Spook of Humpty Doo and Many Other Cases by Tony Healy and Paul Cropper. So let's just dive straight into it. When we think about poltergeists, we tend to think of modern cases. But in reality... Poltergeist stories have existed all over the world for hundreds and hundreds of years. In the book The Story of the Poltergeist Down the Centuries, Nandor Fodor outlined 375 cases of seemingly typical poltergeist hauntings dating all the way back to 355 AD. In 1170, for example, St. Godric, who was the first Norman abbot of Glastonbury, was assailed by a poltergeist during which time 
his hermitage was pelted with showers of stones, his items removed, and also physically thrown at him, which bears striking similarities to countless other poltergeist cases from all over the world. Interestingly, poltergeist cases differ from a traditional haunting, in that a traditional ghost haunting with apparitions can last for centuries, whereas a poltergeist case lasts over a finite period of time, in rare cases two years but generally only a couple of months. Many speculate that the poltergeist phenomenon is associated with the psychokinetic energy of the human occupants of the house, but particularly teenage girls. And of course, there are those who believe that poltergeists are spirits of the deceased, or jinn, or a similar sort of entity. But fundamentally, no one is really sure what poltergeists are, or where they come from, or why they seem to appear and just disappear without any explanation. Our story today examines a poltergeist case that comes from the Northern Territory of Australia, a town called Humpty Doo. It was a dark and stormy night in 1998, and the residents of number 90 McMinn's Drive were gathered on the porch. A storm was rolling in over the horizon, and there was nothing more satisfying than sitting with a few beers, hearing the thunder roll and watching the lightning strike. Andrew and Kirsty Agius, Dave Clark and his partner Jill Somerville, and their friend Doug Murphy, otherwise known as Murph, were all in their late 20s to early 30s, and were enjoying the spectacle that Mother Nature offered, while Kirsty and Andrew's 10-month-old daughter slept inside the house. As the lightning flashed, pebbles began to fall on the porch. At first, the group didn't particularly pay any attention, but eventually pebbles were sailing through the darkness and onto the porch at such an alarming rate that the group became convinced that a group of people had snuck onto their land and were playing a silly prank on them. They were so convinced of this that the men shouted for the pranksters to show themselves and searched the property but could see no suspects anywhere. They were confused and got to the point of feeling a bit unnerved by the whole situation and decided to go back inside and lock the doors. The pebbles followed them. They knew the pebbles were coming from their driveway, that much was clear. But as they took shelter in the house, the pebbles continued to fall and pelted the floors, the tables, beds and their heads. They seemed to materialise from the ceiling and despite the fact that the rain was pouring outside, the pebbles that were falling inside were bone dry and were hot to the touch. The group were dumbfounded but also determined to figure out what was happening in the house. There had to be a reasonable and rational explanation for the events, so they decided to climb into the loft in order to see if there was something amiss. Maybe there was someone in the loft that was somehow dropping the pebbles from there. Maybe this prank was a more orchestrated and sophisticated job than they had realised. As they fetched the ladder and ascended into the loft, their upturned faces were met with showers of pebbles from the loft. But there was nothing else out of place. No hidden prankster to be found. And it didn't stop with pebbles. Later that night, more and more items were hurled across the room or seemed to just drop from the ceiling. Knives, batteries, spanners and shards of broken glass were just some of the items that were suddenly weaponized. And the poltergeist only got more aggressive in the following days. A CD player was wrenched from the wall and smashed onto the floor. Windows and the doors to their glass cabinet were smashed when ashtrays and other items were hurled through them. The occupants of the house were well and truly freaked. They were terrified. They couldn't sleep and were desperate to leave the house, but there was nowhere else to go. They couldn't understand what was happening or why it was happening. One night in particular, the poltergeist became decidedly more violent. The house was repeatedly showered with blizzards of pebbles, mattresses were flipped off the beds, appliances were flung from shelves, and a terrifying scratching began to emanate from inside the walls. The group in the house had no idea what to do, and they had no idea who to call. They weren't particularly religious, but stories that had gone before them would dictate that the most logical thing to do was to call a priest. 
Father Stephen D'Souza from St Mary's Cathedral in Darwin arrived in the little town of Humpty Doo after agreeing to do a walk through the house to see what the problem was for these people. In reality, he suspected that there would be a reasonable explanation for the events. As the priest entered the kitchen, he took note of his surroundings, what was there and anything that seemed out of place or unusual. In his walk around, he noticed that there was a steak knife placed on top of the microwave. Nothing unusual there, as he knew that in his own kitchen, cutlery often ended up here, there and everywhere. The group were anxiously crowded around in the kitchen, awaiting the priest's verdict. As the priest turned to walk through the kitchen, one of the group shouted, Father! The priest spun around just in time to see the knife hurtling towards his chest. There was no time to move, no time to get out of the way, and the priest braced for impact. But about half a metre away from him, the knife stopped dead in mid-air as though it had hit an invisible wall and it dropped to the floor. The group stood silently, trying to take in what had happened. There was no way that anyone could have thrown it. No one was physically in a position in the room to be able to do so and no one could have conceivably made it stop dead in mid-air like it did. The occupants of the house were terrified, but the priest remained unfazed. He had seen it all before and his belief was simple. There was a spirit that had been drawn to the house because one of the occupants was a medium and he would do his best to help them. He was very clear about two things, however. Firstly, that a poltergeist was very unlikely to physically injure them. And secondly, that the power of prayer generally had no effect on a poltergeist. That it would simply disappear when it was good and ready. Humpty Doo's parish priest, Father Tom English, also had a crack at being an impromptu exorcist and witnessed several objects flying around the house. But he blessed the house and doused it liberally with holy water and upon leaving he left behind a crucifix and a bible for protection. Although it seemed that religious intervention did not have the desired effect on the poltergeist. Determined to cover all bases, the group also invited a Greek Orthodox priest who erected a full altar in the kitchen. The group watched in shock as the entity repeatedly tried to pull the book out of the priest's hands and tried to twist his arm behind his back. Eventually he slumped, sweating and out of breath, admitting that he had done everything he could and had been unable to shift the destructive spook. There was clearly nothing that the group could do in order to remove the poltergeist. Besides religious intervention, they were at a loss as to how to get rid of the entity. And for the next couple of months, they were walking on eggshells, waiting for the next attack. Sometimes the poltergeist would attack in big bursts every minute for 20 minutes. Sometimes there would be hours or even days of peace. Sometimes there would only be an assault of objects a couple of times a day. What they did know was that there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to when and how long the attacks would last. In a strange way, they became used to it. They learned to live alongside the bizarre actions of the poltergeist. Sometimes they even found the attacks funny. Their lives had become so weirdly interspersed with absolute logic-defying events that all they could do was laugh. But the false sense of security that they had been lulled into was soon to be shattered. You see, what I haven't mentioned so far is what happened before the first stone fell. Living in this house were a group of friends, all in their late 20s and early 30s and all at their very peak of life. But they had suffered a huge loss, a tragedy that had rocked the very foundations of their beings. In the weeks before the poltergeist arrived, their friend Troy Radatz had died in a terrible accident. He had been in a road traffic accident and his body was incinerated and it happened just down the road from where the group were living. For them, what the poltergeist did next was traumatising. Words began to appear. They were scrawled on walls with markers, they were spelled out with scrabble tiles and they were spelled out using pebbles, scores of pebbles, that were laid out so perfectly that only a flat side of the pebble would be facing upwards. The words that were spelled out 
immediately made the group feel like what was happening was no longer funny. The pebbles spelled out skin, car, help, and most disturbingly of all, Troy. Not only this, but the pebbles began to form themselves into different shapes. One day, hundreds of pebbles came together to form a large cross and a trident. Local school teacher Annette Taylor and her partner Lloyd Green happened to be in the house visiting at the time, and Lloyd testified later, saying that the formation was so neat and perfect it would have taken me hours to make it with a straight edge, a square and a ruler. He also went on to say that as soon as Dave touched the gravel, it just flew everywhere. It pelted down the passageway. It was so loud hitting the walls, the baby started crying. Then the tools started flying around. And for whatever reason, the poltergeist seemed to take umbrage with Annette in particular. Objects were hurled towards her. They would stop dead in midair and drop to the floor. They would change direction in midair and zoom away from her. And as she was explaining how poltergeists were understood in her Maori culture, how she believed that a poltergeist wouldn't physically hurt you, a pair of vice grips flew through the air towards her young son. She reached up to grab them and they hit her hard on the wrist, causing her wrist to swell and bruise. This seemed to solidify the belief in the household that the poltergeist was not only listening to them, but it could understand and respond to them. The residents in number 90 had kept the goings-on in their home relatively quiet. They had told their three hero priests and some close friends, but for weeks those were the only people that knew. But as it happens in any small town, word began to trickle out that there was something strange going on in a small house in Humpty Doo. On March the 27th, just a week after Annette had her violent run-in with the poltergeist, the editor of the Litchfield Times, Jack Ellis, and two reporters showed up at the house in order to experience the poltergeist activity for themselves. And experience it they did. They reported that they had personally witnessed showers of pebbles and gravel falling from the ceiling, and they insisted that there was no way of explaining everything that they saw. The story blew up and the residents of the house were suddenly inundated with calls from journalists from all over the world. Interestingly, when the story dropped in the Litchfield Times, it dropped on April the 2nd and many people in the local area believed it was an April Fool's joke when in fact the events in the house had began in January. Father Tom English did an interview for a radio which was subsequently broadcast throughout Australia. Greg Quayle from Channel 7 rolled up to the house with a crew in tow in order to try and out the events as a hoax once and for all. Greg was a self-professed sceptic and he left that house a believer. Within two hours in the house, he realised that what he was looking at was the real deal. For five days, the team tried to remain sceptical and they searched every nook and cranny of the house for signs that this was some sort of a hoax. Greg said of the events, I thought we'd come here and uncover a hoax, but we've endured an onslaught of flying scissors, stones, knives, broken glass, and yes, three live bullets. Not once did any of us see even a suggestion that any of the five residents were trying to pull a Swifty. All five members of the Channel 7 team have seen things we just can't explain. Objects have appeared seemingly out of nowhere being thrown at or near us. On one occasion, one of the cameramen was up a ladder to the loft when he heard the sound of something hit the outer cover of the roof. He looked up and saw a piece of glass seemingly come through the roof. It then dropped and seemed to go through the ceiling and hit the floor below, at the foot of the ladder where his team were standing. So he had heard the glass hit the roof, watched it come through the roof and then watched it descend through the ceiling and onto the floor below. The same cameraman was hit with an AA battery that had been hurled at him from nowhere. The team and the residents watched objects appear and disappear, float in the air, be hurled across the room only to stop dead and drop to the floor or stop dead and change direction. But there was a problem. 
Greg and his team seemed completely unable to gather any solid evidence of the poltergeist. They would be holding the camera when an object would fly past them in the exact place that the camera didn't catch. They set up static cameras which only captured two events. A baby's bottle falling off the microwave and a pistol cartridge falling a few feet and then bouncing off the furniture. The evidence simply wasn't good enough to convince anyone. And Greg became convinced that the poltergeist was simply one step ahead of them all the time. That it was capable of outsmarting them. Try as they might, they just could not get footage of the events. They set up static cameras all over the house and had the occupants leave and locked all the doors and nothing happened. But when the cameras ran out of battery, the house became alive with objects being hurled and messages appeared on the walls saying, no cameras, no TV, pig camera. In another attempt to reveal a hoax, Greg flew in Brendan Gowdy to help on the case. Brendan was a building maintenance expert and his job was to use sophisticated thermal imaging cameras to film as many of the objects as they could as soon as possible after they had landed. The thinking was that if the object had been held and thrown by a human hand, there would be heat traces on the objects. However, when they were filmed, the objects glowed with a uniformed heat. It was as though they had been heated up in the microwave and were never touched by human hands. Up until this point, everyone had assumed that Kirsty was at the centre of the hoax, as she was the one who was at home all of the time. But both Greg and Brendan insisted that events happened when she wasn't in the house or even in the vicinity. However, when the footage was reviewed, there was one shot of a white plastic lid flying through the air, which would change everything. While Kirsty wasn't in the frame, her reflection could be seen in a glass cabinet ironing some clothes. It wasn't particularly clear, but according to a reviewer of the footage from the TV station, Kirsty could be seen moving slightly upwards when the lid flew through the air, which to them determined that she had thrown the lid and that the whole escapade was a hoax orchestrated by Kirsty. A sceptic was contacted by the television station to give an outsider's opinion, and he in turn hounded Kirsty with calls, and he claimed that he had garnered a confession from her. She maintained that she had never confessed, but after reaching the end of her tether, she had said in exasperation, What do you want me to say? That I did it? That it's all fake? Would that make you happy? But this is where things get even weirder. The residents were obviously completely done with media types. They felt betrayed and they felt that people were laughing at them, claiming that they were drunk or on drugs, and yet they were still living in this nightmare. They were visited by paranormal investigators Tony Healy and Paul Cropper, who were surprised when they arrived to hear that the poltergeist had calmed down and that all had been quiet for the last four days. And something odd had happened just as the poltergeist had stopped. Kirsty had looked out the window and saw two Aboriginal men on their hands and knees digging beneath a tree on their land. She went out to ask what they were doing. And as she approached asking her questions, they didn't answer, but stood up and without looking at her, they silently walked away into a car and were gone. They had cleared a six foot long by two foot wide patch of land and were digging a smaller hole in the centre of it. And after hearing this, Andrew took the investigators aside and told them about something that had happened previously. Andrew freely admitted that he had a particular dislike of the Aboriginal people and was not shy about telling people his opinions. A few years previously, he and Kirsty were living about 65 kilometres south in a place called Bachelor. And as usual, Andrew had not been discreet about his hatred of Aboriginal people and was open about his views, particularly in the pub after a few drinks. At night time, they began to experience stones being hurled at their house and they would sail through the open front door and down the hallway. 
Andrew admitted that he believed some Aboriginal teenagers were playing a prank in response to his behaviour towards them. And he sat at night time dressed all in black in the bushes trying to catch them in the act but he never could. When they left Bachelor they went to Gosford and were working on a construction project. Andrew operated a drill and Kirsty cooked for the camp and again weird things began to happen. On a number of occasions every single cup vanished from the mess hall and would reappear standing upright on roofs or on top of tall posts. Some were filled to the brim with instant coffee granules when they were found and at the time it was considered to be the work of a silly practical joker. But people were slightly more edgy about it when all of the knives in the kitchen went missing and were found embedded into a pig carcass. Whatever was happening in Humpty Doo and whether it was related to these previous events, the household firmly believed that whatever this entity was, it was attracted to Kirsty, and the events only intensified when she was around. The phenomena in the house continued, and it shocked the people who visited. Tony Healy and Paul Cropper set about interviewing the journalists who had visited the property, and they all spoke of their experiences in the same way. They were sceptical on arriving, but the things they had witnessed made them believe that it was really happening. Reporter Tracy Farrar had had a particularly strange experience. She made jewellery in her spare time, and the day before she went to the house, she had spent time on the beach collecting a particular type of small brown shell. As she sat interviewing Kirsty, an identical shell sailed over her shoulder and landed on the table in front of her. And later, a shower of these same brown shells fell from the ceiling. The case of the Humpty Doo poltergeist was much discussed at the time, and a series of priests, investigators, camera people, journalists and lay people all felt as though they had witnessed something supernatural in that unassuming house. Knives, bits of glass and other objects were thrown around the house, stopped dead in mid-air and dropped to the floor, or would change direction in mid-flight. Objects were frequently reported to make an unusually loud noise when they fell. For example, a priest reported that when a glass hit the wall, it shattered, but it sounded like ten glasses had shattered. And a reporter stated that when a shower of pebbles fell, it sounded like an enormous amount of gravel had been dropped. Interestingly, objects that disappeared and reappeared would come back completely polished, shiny and bright. Tracy Farrar also reported that she witnessed a TV remote rise off a table and shoot straight up into the air. The Humpty Doo haunting lasted four months and as for the current residents, they seemed to have had no issues. Around two months into the haunting, the residents of the home awoke to a thick covering of pebbles on their cars and their outhouses. As they examined the debris, they noticed long, shallow troughs in the gravel, as though the gravel was being hoovered up. A friend of one of the housemates reported seeing one of the most bizarre things in this whole case. He said that while he was sitting on the porch outside, he witnessed a small, fist-sized, jet-black sphere passed by him up the driveway and it appeared to have a two-foot-long stream of gravel trailing behind it, as though he was witnessing the entity gather up gravel for the next shower. The Humpty Doo poltergeist case remains an unsolved enigma, serving as a testament to the enduring mysteries that exist in our world. It raises profound questions about the limits of our knowledge and the nature of reality itself. While some may dismiss it as a figment of imagination or a case of elaborate trickery, others find themselves captivated by the tantalising possibility of supernatural forces beyond our understanding. Whatever the truth may be, the Humpty Doo poltergeist case stands as a reminder that there are still aspects of our existence that elude explanation, leaving room for wonder and intrigue in the human experience. Oh, what a strange little tale. So, just to remind you, the information came from a book called Australian Poltergeist, The Stone-Throwing Spook of Humpty Doo and Many Other Cases by Tony Healy and Paul Cropper. If you are an Australian listener, can you tell me if this is something that is sort of common knowledge in 
in Australia? Do you remember this happening? So it happened in 1998. Like, do you remember this being all over the news? Were people kind of laughing about it and joking about it? Or were people taking it seriously? What do you remember? So let's let's break down the theories about what was going on in this house. And the first theory, I think, is probably the most obvious one, which is that the death of their friend Troy triggered what happened. Now, so the death of their friend Troy happened very soon after the first stone fell. But the occupants absolutely categorically did not believe that it was the spirit of Troy that was haunting their house because there, well, there were a couple of reasons for this. The first one being that Troy, their friend Troy, spelt his name T-R-O-U-Y and the Troy that was written in their household was spelt T-R-O-Y. So that was the first thing that made them not believe it was the spirit of their friend Troy because his name was spelt wrong. And you can imagine if you've got a name that is spelled differently to the norm, it, it would be very annoying to have to correct that for your whole life. So in the afterlife, you wouldn't be spelling it wrong yourself. Okay. And to be really clear as well, before we go any further, the pebbles that were laid out to form words, the words that were on the walls, these were all very clear. You could clearly see that the pebbles spelt out car, C-A-R. You could clearly see what was written on the walls. This wasn't some sort of scribble that people were trying to interpret. This was very clearly laid out words and letters. So, the words and letters I would not dispute at all because you can see them, they're clear, you can see exactly what they say. But they just didn't believe it was the spirit of Troy and actually eventually they sort of called out the entity. So they were like, we know you're not Troy, you know, stop stop spelling his name, stop using his name in vain, whatever. And after they did this calling out, there was no mention of Troy, car, fire, again. So they just did not believe it was Troy. What it did do for the household, I think, is it solidified for them this idea that whatever this entity was, was listening to them and was responding to the things that they were discussing in the household. So I think the idea of it being the spirit of Troy is not something that I particularly believe, but it's worthwhile putting out there because obviously I included it in the story. The second theory relates to the friend that lived in the household, Doug Murphy, or Murph, as he was known. And he was really good friends with Troy, probably the best friends of him, out, you know, of anybody in the house. And according to the writers of this book, he was deeply, deeply impacted by Troy's death. And they wrote about him saying that he was a very angry man and that he was, he's described in the book as being full of rage and that he was just so angry about the death of his friend and he was a very angry man in general and struggled a lot because of that anger and because of that rage. And we often associate, you know, poltergeist activity with teenage girls, hormonal activity, kind of emotional changes, hormonal changes that cause deep emotions and therefore it's a psychokinetic thing where all of this energy gets whooshed out into the general surroundings as like this this you know young teenage girl can't contain it but what if it's not just limited to teenage girls like what if this this man this Doug Murphy character was so deeply impacted by the death of his friend and had all of this internal rage sorrow grief fear all of those things that his body just couldn't contain and he ricocheted out into the poltergeist activities of the household And I kind of think, you know, why not? If we can say that the emotional turbulence of just being a teenage girl can cause this sort of energy, why not the same thing for an adult, whether male or female, who goes through a particularly emotional, turbulent time? And I guess that kind of links to theory number three, which is about Kirsty. So in the earlier part of the story, the priest, um, Father Stephen D'Souza, said that he believed that somebody in the house was a kind of closeted medium and didn't realise they were a medium and they were attracting spirits to them and that that person had, you know, attracted some sort of spirit, some sort of poltergeist because of this mediumship abilities. And it does seem that Kirsty is the key part to this story. The activity seems to have gotten much worse when she was present in the house or present in the room. And I think we need to sort of talk about this, the fakery, the alleged fakery. And while I think it's really important to be sceptical and it's really important to try and look at things in a logical fashion, 
that one video doesn't dismiss everything else that happened. And that's the bit that frustrates me about these stories. And it seems that what happened was this man, Greg Quayle, had stayed in the house for five days, done all these um, investigations, filmed everything, had all this footage and actually had very little concrete proof. And then, of course, there was this video where Kirsty could be seen in a reflection and she sort of makes like an upward motion and then an item is thrown and they all respond to the item being thrown. Now, the video quality was apparently so bad that you couldn't actually see the traje- trajectory of the item that was thrown and you could see Kirsty making a slight movement upwards but that movement didn't seem to incorporate like her flicking her hand or whatever that might suggest that she had thrown the item. Also, the people that were in the room were two of the cameramen for the reporters and they insisted that the object had been thrown but had changed direction mid-flight and they insisted that it was not done by any human in the room. So they insisted that but it obviously wasn't caught on video and Greg Quayle later said that he was really frustrated by the series of events because this movement that Kirsty made was seen as a hoax and therefore the story lost all its credibility and it ended up being reported as a big hoax and in a later interview in like 2011 he was like no weird things happened in that house I know that video exists and I feel frustrated because I can't tell whether or not Kirsty threw that plastic white bottle lid but what I can tell you is that if she did the other stuff that happened, which he believed was genuinely inexplicable, suddenly loses all credibility. And it gives me that same feeling of the Enfield haunting when years later, Janet and her sister said, you know, we we faked some some of the evidence because we were under so much pressure to perform because all of these people were coming into the house expecting to find all of these things. And as a result of her saying that, people automatically assume, well, if they faked that much, they must have faked the rest of it despite the fact that there are a lot of people in the case who witnessed different things and who saw things that they said were genuinely inexplicable. And the same seems to apply here. So if we say Kirsty did fake that bit of evidence, maybe she did it because she was desperate to prove that the case was real? I don't know. Maybe she felt under loads of pressure from all of these film crews and and cameramen and reporters that were coming into the house. But if she did fake that bit of evidence, does that mean that everything else that people experienced is automatically false? I just don't think so. And theory number five in this case is, was this an Aboriginal curse? Now listen, I don't think I need to highlight the fact that there is blatant racism from Andrew in this story. I was actually quite shocked at how he freely admitted that he just didn't like Aboriginal people and would talk about this in the pub when he had a few drinks in him. So if it is an Aboriginal curse, then maybe you deserve it, mate, because that's not on. And I felt reading the story that it was very possible that Andrew's conversation about his racism against the Aboriginal people and whether or not that was linked to the goings on in the house. And he wondered if he he had been cursed by, by the Aboriginal people. And actually that felt like more of a projection of his own guilt. And although he potentially wouldn't have been able to say it in his, in, in those kind of terms, I wondered if he sort of felt like, oh shit, I've been actually a bit of a dickhead about Aboriginal people for a really long time. Maybe this is they maybe this is my comeuppance. And just for some cultural context, which I didn't know about, because um, I know very little about Australian Aboriginal people. And within Aboriginal communities, there are shamans that are known as clever men. And they are believed to be capable of some supernatural feats like teleportation, levitation. They have psychic abilities, the ability to heal. And there were non-Aboriginal anthropologists, like famous ones, that suggested that actually, yeah, it does seem like these, these clever men possess some sort of extra abilities. And interestingly, in the book, they reference this story about these South African boys. And obviously... It's not the same, it's not the same country, it's not the same culture, it's not the same region. But they reference a story about these South African boys who um, took the piss out of, or for non-UK and Ireland listeners, who were made fun of a man who was a self-proclaimed witch doctor. 
and they were assailed by showers of stones that pelted them from inside their house in the middle of the night. But I just don't fundamentally know if I believe that it's an Aboriginal curse. That kind of feels like it's on the same territory as Native American burial ground. So I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that one. The next theory was, is this a curse from a previous owner? So the previous owner who had built the house had been evicted by the banks. Now, he was not the previous owner directly before this group of people. He had built the house a long time ago and was evicted. And he said, my spirit every night is there. Every night I'm there in my dreams. My wife is always there too. It was our life. So technically, don't really think it's a curse. He did, however, reportedly curse the banks, which fair, curse the banks, do that. But I don't think this really stands up as being, you know, a curse from a previous owner. A probably very disgruntled owner who was forced to leave the house that they built and probably had a deep spiritual connection to the house. But I don't know if really know if I'm if I'm down with this one. But there have been reports that the house had a terrifying atmosphere previously. So people in the local community who had played in the house as children or previous cleaners or the lady, the primary school teacher, Annette, who we met earlier in the story, she had been in the house previously as a child, I think, all reported that the house had this terrible, dark, terrifying atmosphere and that doors would open and close by themselves. Nobody reported anything to the degree of the Humpty Doo poltergeist case that we have just explored. But people were like, no, it's a pretty, pretty freaky place. And our last theory is, was it the storm? So apparently, according to these guys who wrote this book, and they seem to be like knowledgeable people on this topic of poltergeists, right? And the book was very well written. They have all their sources in there, where they got all the the information was very, very good. But they reported that in the poltergeist cases that they have researched over the years, that it is quite common for there to be a thunderstorm, big old thunderstorm, and then the poltergeist activity begins. So here is my theory to you. I think there are so many witnesses in this story and so many witnesses who were determined to prove that it was a hoax and that these witnesses still, years later, were saying, no, something happened in this house, supernatural that we couldn't understand, that this priest was willing to go and give interviews to say, no, weird things happened in this house. I saw them with my own two eyeballs. So I'm willing to say something weird happened in this house. I just think it's too premature to say that everything was faked by Kirsty because of one incident that may or may not have been faked. And even if she did fake it, there are so many people who claim to have seen really weird shit in this house. So here's my theory. And it's kind of a mix of the other ones. Doug Murphy was living in that house. An incredibly angry man who was deeply traumatised and in the middle of acute grief because of the death of his friend. Mix in with that, Kirsty, who seems to have been surrounded by poltergeist activity of a similar nature over the years. So you've got Kirsty, you've got the emotional energy and angry energy of Doug Murphy and then this big storm happens and storms, thunderstorms are just full of energy. I can say that as somebody who suffers from migraines, when a thunderstorm is coming, my brain, my head starts to pound. So it does something to the energy, to the atmosphere. Is it possible that those three things combined created this perfect storm and that's why the energy was so dramatic? That's why it started suddenly that night and maybe it ended suddenly when, when, when you know, Doug Murphy started to come to terms with his grief or maybe it ended suddenly when actually the energy had abated a little bit. That would kind of make sense as to why these weird things had happened for Kirsty previously, but not to the same degree. Could we question, you know, in those previous times when pebbles were thrown through the door and, you know, when they were working on that site, is it possible that actually Kirsty maybe was going through some sort of emotional turmoil, whatever that might have been, and therefore these things started happening because of her emotional turmoil, but then combine her mediumship skills... They have a new baby, which is always a stressful time. They have a man living in the house who is incredibly angry. They have the death of their friend. And then this big thunderstorm did all of those things combined unleash the Humpty Doo poltergeist. 
Let me know what you think. I'm dying to hear your opinions on this one. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And if you want to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can sign up to Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætte af alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.